Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, as you do each and every week. This is such a special week for us here at the Hazard Ground Podcast. It marks our 100th episode. That's right, 100 episodes of the Hazard Ground Podcast. We can't begin to tell you how excited we are about what we've accomplished in the past two years of doing this. From a very simple idea, a concept, just a few short years ago to 100 episodes in the books, it has been an amazing ride. We've been able to share some amazing, amazing stories on this podcast, touch people's lives in positive ways that we never expected when we set out to do this thing all the way back in 2015 and its inception in 2017. And you guys have been there with us every step of the way, and we can't thank you enough for being there with us over the last two years. So for this week's episode, no new sponsor, no reads, no advertisements, nothing. We're just going to ask you to do one thing. Go to iTunes and leave us a review. Again, it doesn't have to be long. It could be one word. It could be no words. Just leave us five stars if you want. We do always appreciate the feedback. So if you have some time, please write. But otherwise, give us that five-star rating. We know there's literally thousands of you that listen to the show all over the world. So if every listener left a review or a rating, we'd be well into the thousands. And the top ratings on the iTunes charts, these reviews help us out so, so much. iTunes ranks mainly on reviews. So the more reviews we get, the more likely people are to find us on iTunes and other podcast platforms out there. So ultimately, you're not just helping us. You're helping our guests and other veterans connected to the people and organizations that are featured on the show. So once again... Help us celebrate 100 episodes and get on iTunes and leave us a review. Thank you so, so much for joining us each and every week. Now on to this week's episode. Our guest this week, a retired Sergeant First Class in the Army and a Special Forces Green Beret who had a total of nine deployments, everything from Somalia to Afghanistan. He was medically retired after 21 years, and he currently serves as the president and CEO for the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation. He is Michael Rod Rodriguez joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Rod, good to talk to you, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, Mark. Really appreciate it. All right, so kind of let's go back to the beginning. Uh, so much you did in your entire career, uh, but we always start the podcast asking about how you got in the military. Why would you join the Army? Um, you know, I, I always tell people the same story, you know, uh, you know, my first heroes, the people I looked up to growing up, you know, my, my, my initial mentors, you know, of course was my father, you know, most dominant male, uh, in my life, you know, and, uh, and he's a Vietnam veteran. And then my grandfathers are served during world war two and, and all their brothers served during world war two. And, and I knew they did, but they didn't really talk too much about it. Um, there's a bit of a, I don't know, somewhat of a mystery behind their service, you know, um, and uh, they just, you know, the only things they really shared were when they would talk about uh, their friends, their buddies, you know, that they did serve with. And they, they told very vivid stories about their buddies, never about any of the, you know, the crap that went down overseas or, you know, during their deployments. But they would talk about their friends and tell these funny stories. And and those were really the only times my I saw my father or grandfather's, you know, smile whenever the, the, the subject of, of them fighting in, in their conflicts came up, you know, and I, as a child that had a huge uh, impact on me because these are, you know, they, I could tell that they, they, 
you know, these were these were men that they still love to this day, even though they hadn't seen them since they left service, you know, but they, they still held a special place in their heart. And, uh, you know, that camaraderie, that bond that goes back to, you know, really, I, I believe with us as human beings, we're, we're tribal in nature, you know, we're very, you know, it's the, that's the core of our, I think, uh, of how humans interact. And it just, to me as a child, it really struck a tone. It's something I always wanted to do. Isn't it amazing? Um, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I know I do. There are guys that I was on deployment with that I haven't talked to in years. I haven't seen in years. But if I ever cross paths with him, it's just like we never stop talking to each other. And furthermore, you know, the funny, you know, you know when you see somebody you haven't met for a long time, you, you exchange all the pleasantries and everything else. That's not really the first interaction we have with guys we serve with, you know? It's just you start smiling at each other and laughing and something pops in your head. You get this memory and you're like, remember when we did this, man? And, and you just relive that whole part of your life again. And it's, it, and it's a great experience. It's so cathartic. Oh, it, it truly is. You know, and that's it. You're 100% right. Like when we started, the saying was uh, you pick right up where you left off. You know, there are guys I don't, you know, that I won't see for three, four, five years. But then, you know, when I see them again, it's not like, well, have you, why haven't you called me? You know, no, it's not. It's none of that crap. You know, it's just like, hey, brother, how you doing? Yeah. Good to see you. <laughs> and then immediately into the, you know, the usually the, the embarrassing stories about each other. That's really probably it's usually one of the first directions uh, you'll go to with one of your uh, the buddies you serve with. You know, you tell funny stories about someone screwing up or whatever, like, you know, and I'll tell us I'll, 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 I'll tell a story here that anytime I run into someone that served with me in Somalia, they always bring up the same story. So I'll, I'll share a story here. So when I deployed to Somalia, I was brand new, 18 year old private, didn't know nothing. I mean, like he won. Uh, and we flew Tower Air to get over there. And, um, you know, when you get in commercial flights, you, you know, you, if you remember, you got to take your bolt and put out, take yep, it out of yeah. your weapon and put it in your pocket. We landed in Mogadishu on the, the FLS they had out there. They built uh, right on the beach and stuff um, right there by the by the coast. And uh, they're like, hey, your trucks, vehicle's already staged. We were heading inland. You know, everything was just as soon as we hit. We were on the ground like maybe 30 minutes. So they're like, hey, jam your mags, give you your basic clothes. We're jamming our mags. And then. We go out the wire and they're like, all right, hey, lock and load. So I go to lock and load. I'm like, oh, crap, my bolt. It's in my pocket. I haven't put it in yet, you know, like a dumbass. And uh, I go to put my, look for my bolt and I can't find it. I cannot find my bolt. <laughs> and there's and then, this huge I'm, sweat it, pouring over you right now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, 30 seconds into the streets of Mogadishu and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just got this pipe. You know, I really, that's all I got, this piece of steel that's completely useless, you know? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what, what the hell am I going to do? So, like, any private, I'm like, uh, I'm not going to say nothing. So I didn't say nothing. I didn't say a damn thing. So until <laughs> we got to our fire base that night, and then I, I go to my platoon sergeant, and uh, Sergeant Baez, and I was like, hey, um, I can't find my bolt. I mean, oh, my gosh. It was, you can imagine where I went from there, so... Uh, usually when I run into someone in somebody, and then I became famous for, you know, being the, the new guy. I've been in the unit a very short time uh, that lost his bolt, you know. So. Yeah, the FNG syndrome. There it is. So, yeah, um, yeah, pretty much. You come from a strong line of military members in your family. Did they encourage you to join or did they try to talk you out of it? I mean, you uh, got in, in in the early 90s, so it's not like we're in, we're in, you know, I think the Gulf War just ended, right? Right. So my senior in high school was during the Gulf War. Um and I was 16, so it wasn't even a factor for me to, to join, you know, uh, but I, I felt a calling to it. But uh, my father did not want me to serve, you know, his uh, his experiences in Vietnam, you know, they still they're still with him today. I mean, like all of us, you know, um, he, had, he he was there during Tet and there's a, you know, they, all those men, you know, just during Tet, but during their service, you know, uh, they experienced some pretty hellacious stuff. And 
I think what made it worse and, and made it more difficult for the those men and women that served in Vietnam is when they came home. You know, there was there was an, they were like you know they were seriously they were spat upon. And uh, so my dad did not have the greatest experience in the military, um, and he did not want that for me. He was highly discouraged of it. Uh, he, he discouraged me. Uh, he was like, "No, I don't want that for you. I want you to do something different." You know, um, because just try something else. You know, he he did not want that at all. Uh, my grandfather's, um, you know, by the time I joined, I had lost uh, one of my grandfathers, and uh, he he told me it was a he says if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. My other grandfather, my grandfather was pretty much the same. You know, they were just like if that's something you wanted to do, um, be sure that's what you want to do, and that was it. That's where the conversation ended. And I'm like, okay. But my father actually did not want me to serve. Uh, he was like, don't don't do it. Um, and uh, it wasn't so much of like, uh, you know, uh, well, if you tell me not to do it, that makes me want to do a more thing. Not at all. Definitely not. It was more of a, uh, I respected him, but I, I, as I was maturing into, into manhood, you know, I was like, you know, it's something I want to do. And I felt a calling. I really did. I had, I felt a, a calling to serve my country in that capacity, even if it was, uh, you know, uh, four years, five years, six years, or, you know, I, I, however many years, you know, I, I just felt that it was, it was my duty as, as a citizen to serve my country in that capacity. All right. So, you know, you finished your basic training and, and AIT and everything. And, you know, like you said, you'd only been in the army for a short time and quickly you're on the ground in Somalia. Did you think at that time you were heading into combat? Did you really understand what was going on there? I mean, sometimes it's a little bit unassuming for an 18 year old kid to, to grasp, you know, the political and, and, uh, you know, notion and things that are at play when they send you off to someplace remote. Yeah, I, I had no idea. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I did not really know. I didn't understand. I I, I, uh, I knew it was a bad place, and I knew we were going to help. You know, which was cool. I, I thought it was great. You know, is is be able to um, help uh, those that are you know on. I mean, like it, it just just help people. You know, and uh, but I didn't really understand it. You know, unlike you know. Even 18-year-olds today, you know, Somalia is completely different than what's going on with the, with the GWAT. So, I mean, kids know. I mean, guys are, you know, guys and gals are, you know, dying. You know, um, there's a war. Whereas this was completely different. And it was brand new. Um, there hadn't really been uh, that large of humanitarian efforts, uh, to my knowledge, when I was 18, you know, that I knew of. Uh, you know, this was called Operation Restore Hope. And so that was my thing. So I had no idea what the hell. And then, you know, the first time we're getting shot at, I'm like, all right, you know, but you can't. We didn't know where it was just it was it wasn't like full on one on one. You know, they were coming at us. It was it was not what I was I thought what they taught you in basic training back then. You know, that was still during the, the Cold War, like, oh, Russia's, you know, uh, well, not really Cold War, but, you know, Russia's the bad guy. And the, the, the tactics were still like that as far as, as warfare. It wasn't what they are now. They don't they teach things entirely different than they it do. It literally was the first you know, urban warfare environment that we'd really ever fought in as a country. Because that's not, yeah. like, you know, like you said, it's bad guys in one uniform on one side, good guys in, in another uniform on the other side. That wasn't the case when going through Somalia. I mean, everybody had a weapon. It didn't mean that they were a bad person. It, you, you, they had no uniforms. They had no distinguishment of who was a, a, a combatant and who was just a civilian. I mean, it was a, an entirely different warfare, I think, that we were unprepared for at the time. Oh, oh yeah, it was, it was just completely foreign, you know, and it wasn't anything I... I had ever thought of, you know, or, or been, I mean, obviously I'm 18 year old, 18 year olds don't know a whole lot, you know, uh, but I didn't know. I mean, it, and, and even like the weapons, like the ROE we had, they're like, okay, they can have weapons. And I'm like, well, what if, well, how do I, you know, to me, I'm like, wait a minute, well, who's the bad guy? Well, who do I, who do I worry about? You know? And, and even then it would like, so it was even more so than, uh, 
you know, I, I was a lot of it was I had uh, you know AKs and and uh, older French weaponry, but you know they they still like one guy I know got medevac because he got they crushed his face with a with a with a slingshot. You know, oh, God. <laughs> we were we were up on it. Yeah, he was. You know, those those uh, like old style David Glass yeah. shots. You know, <laughs> I mean, he was standing right next to me, and then I hear this like, like if you were to throw a, I just throw a rock at a, the sound. You think a rock at it, like you throw it a pumpkin as hard as you could. You know that, like this, like a thud sound, and then the guy starts screaming. I look to him, and I'm like, holy crap, his face was caved in, and you know, and and then I saw, then I saw a bunch more rocks coming at us, and they were whipping him at us, and I'm like, holy crap. Killing us with slingshots, you know. Obviously, the guy didn't die, you know, but uh, it was just—it was just different. Was when, when you see that happen, and you're awakened to combat in and of itself, but a different form of combat, did you ever think at any point in time, like, whoa, maybe I made the wrong decision? No, never did. I—I I, maybe it's just me being naive, or or, or some, you know. I—I I did not. I, I never thought. I thought, you know, I always thought I—I was in the right place at the right time. You know, every time anything happened. Um, I felt like that was, that's where I was supposed to be. You know, that's where, you know, uh, that's where God placed me and that's where I should be. And, you know, often my choices took me to that point. So I never thought I ever made any, any, any wrong decisions or wrong turns along my way. All right. So, uh, Somalia ends, um, and obviously everyone knows the, uh, you know, the fallout from that and everything else. Uh, I don't know how much of the, you know, real infighting that you guys had did there. Um, if I do recall correctly, 10th mountain was more of a support factor than anything else. Um, you know, a backup factor, so to speak. But um, when this all ends, there was a lot of consternation from the guys who fought in that battle that pulling out was the wrong thing, that it was the wrong decision. It looked like a loss when it really was a win. And despite the fact that we lost 19 guys, you know, they wanted to go in there and finish the job. Were you, which, where was your thoughts at the end of that whole thing? No, of course. I, I felt the same way. Um, yeah, and the position, like well, what I did uh, in Somalia was a lot of the escorting the food, you know, getting it inland to, you know, away from the coastal areas where a lot of the aid was getting hijacked and, excuse me, and taken over by the warlords and sold and distributed how they self felt, uh, and how they saw fit. Um, so that was a lot but of what I did, but so we take it in. And so we got to see a lot of the people that you don't see, you know, that, that, that a lot of the guys on that, but also, uh, there was, there was a few raids that we did, you know, I did a lot of QRF missions, um, a few raids, uh, you know, not a whole lot of the, the, the um, on the offensive that was reserved for some of the other units that came uh, afterwards. And I had left Somalia just before that whole, you know, before the, the, the entire Black Hawk Down incident. And, and to your question about, you know, what it felt like, yeah, I felt awful. I remember watching it on TV. We were up at Drum and and I saw it and it was just like this burning, like a <clears throat> like an anger and pain at the same time, you know, because you could see these, you know, our, uh, what was going on, particularly with the imagery of them being drugged through the streets and it was just awful. It was just, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I don't think I ever felt, you know, as, as a, um, I was, I was like 19 at the time. That was, I think that was the first time in my life I ever felt a, a severe or really, really strong, um, I guess hatred is probably the best way to grasp it at that time. You know, I never felt that level of hatred for, for any, anything in, in my life at that point, you know, uh, because I felt it was, uh, it was personal, you know, and, and, and I learned that in anybody that's ever served, you know, the, those that wear the uniform, your brothers and sisters, and, and I don't care what, what branch they serve. This is my family, you know, and I, I took that as, as personal. So it was, uh, it was just, I felt, I felt the same way. We, we all felt the same way. 
So this is 93 and it ends, uh, you know, 9-11 isn't until eight years later. Kind of give me the career path and, uh, you know, okay. when, when you go to special yeah. forces. So, um, you know, I saw that the SF guys when I was in Somalia and uh, it was, it was, it was, they weren't wearing all the same crap we were. They looked a lot more comfortable. Uh, they didn't <laughs> have to wear, you know what I mean? I'm like, damn, that looks nice. And, and there was one uh, incident where I saw there was this, a team. Um, they had a pet monkey and I was like, that is the coolest freaking thing I've ever seen. You know, they just, this monkey was with them all the time. So I was like, damn, that's awesome. Uh, I was like, who are those guys? And those are green Berets, those special forces guys. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then, um, in 94, when, uh, there was that thing going on in Haiti, when, uh, um, there was a, the military coup, uh, that occurred. And then, uh, we went in as a corporation restored democracy. That was, uh, this right after that it was in 94, it was an E4 at the time, um, that was when uh, Tenth Mountain again was called in, and, and we got on the Eisenhower USS Eisenhower aircraft carrier in Norfolk, and then took a cruise down there. And that's when we were, you know, right there off the coast of Haiti. There was a, uh, you know, a combat uh, a brigade, uh, the Tenth uh, Mountain guys on an aircraft carrier getting ready to air assault in, you know. Uh, and then there was the 82nd and Rangers and everybody else in the air, you know, just getting ready to pounce on Haiti. Um, and, and remove Cedras from power. Raul Cedras, that was the, the dictator had taken over uh, eight months post their, right after their election. And uh, that's when um, they said, okay, no, never mind, never mind. You guys can come in. So then that turned in. It's, it's so, instead of an offensive, it came back into for the transition of power, you know, where he, he agreed to leave and, and then we could make sure that the democracy, uh, you know, from their elected official was, was secured. So then that was the second thing that I had done. Um, and of course, when we got there, uh, I saw the SF guys again, you know, and the same thing, you know, Haiti's hot, you know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it's hot, it's hot and wet. And uh, they, they weren't, those, again, those guys didn't have to wear all the same crap we were wearing. They looked comfortable and, they were just different, you know, they were always, whenever we get somewhere, they were already there. Uh, and that was kind of like, you know, I, I, I want to try that, you know, and that's, that was the catalyst somewhat uh, for me to throw my hat in the ring and, and try and go with selection. Did you meet any resistance from anybody when you said you wanted to do it? No, I did not. So, so this is what I, did. so here, here, let me tell more my backstory. So when I joined, I was an air defense guy. I was not an infantryman. I have to tell people that when they, when I say I was in Somalia, there's two things I got to tell people. I'm, there. I'm like, no, I wasn't ever Black Hawk down, and I was an infantryman. And they're like, I was not an infantryman. I was an air defense guy. They're like, what the hell were you doing there? And I said, well, what they what the air defense did, you know, is and even even today, you know, what they'll do is, you know, they don't need at this time, you know, stingers, and that's what I was a stinger uh, stinger guy. Uh, they would just be like, all right, uh, you know. Uh, 287 infantry they need four guys you're gonna go over there with that platoon so you know you're just some slice element attached to them doing the exact same thing those guys were doing so that's that's what that's what i did for both of those missions they're like are right, you belong to this this infantry company or this and that's that's what i did um so then after after uh after four years of service um i got an opportunity to uh re-enlist and i'm like you don't want to re-enlist and this is when i was like all right i got a couple deployments maybe i'll get out I said, well, let me make my transition a little bit easier, and and I don't know why, but so I, I got stationed at White Sands Missile Range, and uh, what I did down there was just test fire stingers. I would just sit on the range, and we would shoot. I shot, I don't even know how many stingers I got to fire, and we'd shoot down F4s and, you know, testing the electronic, electronic countermeasures and the newer types of stingers, and so it was really cool 
but it was a TDA unit, meaning that I didn't even have TA-50. I didn't do nothing. I was I worked for civilians. I worked for rocket scientists, you know, uh, yeah. big 80-pound brain. High-paid high civilians. <laughs> right. And, and uh, uh, But they needed, by, by regulation at White Sands, they, the person to fire them has to be, uh, you know, uh, uniform service. So that's what I did. I worked on a range complex and shot stingers. But I got bored super quick. And, and uh, I was at White Sands, and I was um, – and I'm from Las Cruces, New Mexico, so it's like 20 minutes away. And so I was home, basically. Uh, but, you know, I had been in four years, and I was like, I don't know. I don't think I want to come home. I don't think this is – things are different, you know. So that's when I was like, you know, I, I need to try do this whole selection thing. So I trained my butt off uh, at White Sands, and I was fortunate. The elevation was – you know, like 45, 4,800 feet. So then when I came over here to brag, it was, a, I had a little bit of an advantage, I think. At least that's what I tell myself. I don't know. But, uh, um, and that's when I went to selection and then came to brag in, in 97. And I've been here since. All right. So where were you on 9-11? Uh, I was here at Bragg. I was in uh, the basement of seventh group. We were, I was doing some training down there and, um, we were in a, uh, doing some class. It was, it was actually the class was a, a range certification class, you know. So we were there just like, all right, this, this, or whatever. Then, then one of the guys came and hey, you guys got to go back to your companies. We're like, what? What the hell? We got I got to do this. So I can, they're like, hey, go back to your companies. We're like, they didn't say nothing. So we're like, all right. So me and a real good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Levi Rogers, we went to the whole Q course together and uh, ended up on the same team. We leave and we're driving and then i remember we walked into our company just as the second tower was hit and that's when i was like well, what the hell's going on you know and then they're like hey call your families we don't you don't know when you're gonna be home make sure they're safe make sure they got food water um you know we, we don't, we're not sure what's going on so then that's that's where i that's that's my story for 9-11 so then i just hung out with the team then of course fort bragg went on lockdown um and then you know we were dispersed to do various different things so at this point, I mean, obviously, you know, you're going somewhere um, to what extent and what exactly your job would be. Obviously, you don't know. But um, were you of the mindset like, let's go get them? I mean, let's go do this. Or were you kind of more just waiting for orders and, you know, kept a calm head about yourself? No, of course, I felt like everybody else did in the country. You know, we we're like, what, who the hell did this? Like, let's find them and, and, you know, crush their soul. <laughs> really, that's, that was it. I think, we all, I think we all felt like that, you know, whether they were in the uniform or not. Everyone was like, you know, we were so unified as a nation. You know, we were just, you know, we were mourning the tragedy and the tragic losses of all those victims on, on you know, from the four crash sites and uh, all those involved. But everybody wanted, you know, it was like wanted to do something, you know, and that's what, that speaks to what this – what the, the you know what the ideals and foundation of our country you know we're like hey look you, you're not going to do that to us and get away you know we we're gonna we don't care if, if you're in this country you're American and we're gonna take care of you and, and uh, so of course I felt like that but I didn't get to I can get to Afghanistan for a couple years until a few years after that because within special forces you know we have we have uh, at any given time any U.S. Uh, special forces guys are in between 85 100 110 depending on on the statistic you read or, or time of year, uh, and 85 to 110 uh, countries every day. So we had pre-existing missions, you know, so I, we were, I had just come back from Colombia and we were getting set to head back out again, you know, and, uh, you know, those missions were, you have to do that. This, you know, they secure our national, we make sure that, um, those, those, they're very strategic missions, you right. know, and they have to be maintained. You can't just 
stop doing what you're doing in the, the rest of the world to focus on this threat. Because in that area, you know, that was 5th Special Forces Group's area, and they were very well capable of handling it at that time. Um, and they did. They went in and freaking did a phenomenal job. Uh, but then it grew, and then, it, you know, they needed more. So then that's when the other groups, uh, you know, started rotating in, uh, in into that mix. And, and, you know, we all ended up deploying to, to Afghanistan or, you know, Iraq. Uh, I never made it to Iraq but uh, I spent I spent some time in Afghanistan a couple times. But um, uh, that's that's what it was. That's why it wasn't I wasn't in until like a couple of years later. And I remember, you know, that's where in my mind that's where the fight was. And I think we all felt that way. So I, I couldn't wait to get over there. I was like, when are we going? Where are they going? You know, and and uh, eventually everyone, and of course, everyone, everybody's been over there at this time. Yeah, and and you know, just for those listening who aren't military, there there isn't a sense of like let's go let's go get that. I mean. The sense is that you've got your brothers over there doing the same thing, and all you want to do is help. Now, in the word help, that encompasses probably, you know, meeting up with some bad guys and doing some bad <laughs> things to them. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think you chomp at the bit not to just get there so you can go be a wild man. You just because that's where all your brothers are, doing, are putting their blood, sweat, and tears in every single day, and you want to do your part. Of course. Yeah, of course. You want to be there for them. You know, you, you, you want to be there because that's. You know, every every like sketchy moment I've ever had where things are really like, holy crap, uh, this could be it type of moment. You know, um, I never th- thought once that about myself and, and not to say I at all, but I was always concerned. You know, I, I would always wonder where everyone else was, you know, like, oh, shoot, where's where's Randy? Where's Brian? Where's where's Paul? Where's, you know, I was just those I would, you know, where's Jim, where's, you know, that those, where are they at? You know, where are they okay too? Are they, what's going on? So you're a hundred percent right. You know, you always, you're, you're, when it comes down to it, you've talked with anyone or read any of the guys that are writing war books or anything like that, you're fighting for the, for those two left and right. You know, uh, obviously you're doing it in the grand scheme of things. You're doing it because I, we're serving our country however, for whatever mission. But when it comes down to it, it's, it's, you know, your, your family to your left and right. So you had come close to combat, uh, as you mentioned before, in Haiti and Somalia and everything else. Um, when you get into your first engagement <coughs> in Afghanistan, uh, for the first time you see real live combat, can you recall that scenario, that situation? Yeah, um, it it was. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can. So it was. Man, and I, not to discount it, this the scenario at all, uh, but it was training. I mean, really, it was it was, but real life at that point because a lot of our training is real high risk. I mean, we train as you fight. I mean, I think everybody does to some extent, um, but it was just a a training mission, uh, but real. I, I don't know, and that, maybe that's just me, the, the way I looked at it. But it was very, uh, I don't know. Uh, it was scary for me because I knew that uh, you know one of my brothers could end up not coming home. You know, right. it was, it was that, that's where the fear came in for me was like, holy crap, you know, we, someone might not come home, you know, we might not all be back in the team room later. Uh, you know, that was, that's where the fear with, with regard to the, you know, the very first, uh, engagement or, or uh, the, our very first, um, you know, mine anyway, right. that's where it was. That's, that's where the fear set for me. And it's, you know, even just talking about it now, I have to take it back to that, you know, it's just like, damn, that was I was scared for them. I was, I mean, and like I said, I'm not Superman. I don't know. Uh, no, I, I'm not. I don't want to portray like, ah, oh, fearless, bull, nah, bull crap. Uh, it's just, that's, that's where my mind went immediately was, you know, uh, 
you know, my teammates. Now, it's funny you forthcoming about that. And I ask the question a lot, and sometimes I feel like it's a dumb question. You know, I, I ask people we interview on the podcast, you know, were you scared? You know, and everyone's got a different answer to it. Some people are willing to, you know, say, look, yeah, obviously there's a, an element of fear. And other guys just say no. You know, it, it, it never, it, for, if it ever did cross my mind, I quickly discarded it and moved on. Um, and, well, I think those are all fair answers, and, and certainly it's from the perspective of the individual we're talking to. But I think fear is very normal. I mean, I, I can remember being there. I can remember experiencing fear. Um, but in the same respect, you know, you don't really focus on it until after you get back from whatever mission you're on, because you're so caught up in the moment. You're so caught up doing what you're trained to do and, and, uh, and being where you're supposed to be and everything else and taking care of, you know, all your teammates and your brothers and sisters and whatnot. And, um, but I think, you know, the acknowledgement that there is fear to me is very, very normal. Oh, it is. I mean, it's a human, normal human reaction. You know, did I ever... You know, to to add to that, to, to what I said, is I never thought anything would happen to me. I, I didn't. Um, I was so focused on my brothers and, and, and sisters. You know, we, we had females out there with us as well um, that I I didn't think anything would happen to me. Maybe that's just, I guess, it makes me be naive, but I was scared. I'm like, holy crap. But it was afterwards, um, particularly with me, it, a lot of times I'd get injured or, or the last ID or, or something. I'd look back. I'm like, wow. I, how the hell did I make it through that? You know, that's when it's like, that's, that's, I'm almost, almost more scared afterwards than I am, than I was oh, yeah. because you're so focused. You like flip the switch. Cause you've done this. You've, you've trained so hard for this moment that it's just, you're just going through the motions. You're just like, all right. And then you adapt and, you know, to, to the scenario as it, as it plays out, but you're doing it, you've done it, you've done it a thousand, 10,000 times, you know, you're just doing it a little bit different in a different environment under different circumstances. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I love, I love the conversations that I have with, you know, with my buddies about that, because we can tell the same story or we can talk about the same situation, but each one of us felt entirely different because of yeah. how we viewed it. That's interesting. I just remember there were, you know, I was outside the wire, you know, one every three or four days. So <laughs> I, I, did, I did a lot more than I ever thought I was going to from that standpoint. But I can remember days, you know, you're getting kitted up, you're getting ready first thing in the morning, whatever it is, whenever you're rolling out. And, you know, it's almost like that feeling in the locker room before a game, you know, you have the adrenaline pumping, you feel good and you feel like, you know, hey, I'm ready for this. And there were other times I went out and I just, man, I got a bad feeling today. You know, you just wake up and you just don't So you're like, how many more times can we do this before? we roll the dice and throw, you know, and crap out, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and I, obviously it's a different environment for you guys in the SF community and in, in the way you do it. But you know, I, the, that sort of pendulum swing again, uh, I don't know if it was like that for everybody, but it just seemed normal for me. Yeah. I, I, I it's funny. So build on that is, uh, uh, I love before every mission we had, a <clears throat> we had, a, uh, everyone had their own like ritual, right? You know? Yeah. Pre-game and, ritual. And one of <laughs> Yeah, and everyone and what was was really cool about my the the last team I was on was we had at, at our fire base everyone had a um in in their rooms we all had our own room and uh, but everyone had like these massive stereos like like old school like like early nineties barracks stereos like these just but huge speed I mean just loud as hell so everyone would listen to their own music everybody so everyone's getting ready and there was this ritual. Where everyone like just turn on their music. So you walk into the hallway and hear like five or six different genres or or types of music, you know. But everyone was into it, you know. And we'd come out and and just it was it was a um, 
we were happy. I mean, really, the, mm-hmm. and I, it might have been to the music, you know, because music does, you know, does something to everybody, uh, whether you like it or not, it does. Um, and it might have been the music, but that was one thing that was common. We'd all turn on music, and and if the guys, there was a couple guys that wouldn't play their music, but they could hear everybody else's, you know. So there was, sure, there was yeah. booming through the hallways, you know. Oh, um, and that's what we did, you know. And and we had our own area. Obviously, we had slice elements attached to us, but no one ever came into our area. So it was, it was, we were checking nods and we go, we bounce back and forth. You know, there was that, that writ, pre-mission ritual that, that we did, uh, unless it was a time sensitive, then it was just like grab your stuff and go. But, uh, for, for a lot of the times we roll out and areas of darkness, you know, uh, it was, it was that ritual. And I think back, you know, heck, I got a smile on my face right now, just thinking about it, you know, and every time I hear some of those songs, you know, it takes me right back. to. I was going to say, what was your go-to? Oh man. You know, it's funny. It's, I listen to a lot of like, uh, uh, like techno, believe it or not. Really? I like these weird, oh yeah, I would listen to these weird. Like either I, I, I have a very eclectic uh, um, taste in music, I guess. So mm-hmm. I would listen to something that would like get me going, and it was like either like some type of techno, or I'd go the to the other direction and play some some rancheras or some mariachi music or something or some cumbia or something, something with a beat, you know. And it was usually the the two. If I had to pick two, it was either some type of cumbia. You know, uh, which is like a in Mexican dance music, or or it'd be like some type of techno that would come out. You know, that's hysterical. Uh, I can only imagine the rash of guff that you got from all your teammates. And there's Rodriguez again. But <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. It was, it was funny. It was funny. Or or I'd go old school and go to like some old like gangster rap. You know, those like ah. one of those three. Those are probably the the three. I throw on some some Tupac or or uh, well played. Uh, ghetto boys or something like that you know <laughs> was was there one of your teammates who played a music you couldn't stand and every time you hear it you're just like oh god i gotta turn this off no i, oh, okay. I love all music i loved it all man i listened to like in the evenings and even still today you know i listen to depending on what i what i want to do i listen i listen to all types of music you know i, I love country i love i listen to classical i, I love musicals you know I, I have like i said i listen to you know, I think I grew up. My mother was my mother listened to uh, uh, records a lot, so I think that was my upbringing. There was always music in the house. We didn't have TV, but there was always music. Um, so I know like all the lyrics, to every every uh, every every song, and the sound of music, and the Music Man, and I mean, I have I, I have such a broad view of music. I love music. I I really do. So, it was, I, but I would get a lot of crap whenever I play musical. I will say that's the one time if I play like. Um, some fiddler on the roof or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> they would, I, I'd get all kinds of crap from the guys. There you go, uh, playing Pygmalion, and everybody's looking at you strange. <laughs> so, all right, let's um, let's kind of take a, a dramatic turn here to a little bit more of the serious stuff uh, from your deployments. Do you remember, you know, your first casualty, whether it was wounded or KIA, and and the circumstances and things of that nature? Because that obviously is a a defining point of any deployment. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a child. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it was uh, it was in Somalia, as a matter of fact. Um, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> thinking more, the first time. I was thinking yeah. more of the uh, the war on terror because it was a, just a different level of combat. Yeah, and I so, met I met your uh, own guys more more so than the enemy. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I, the, I was fortunate. I never had d- during my deployments. You know, I never had to um, firsthand. I was never there when uh, we lost one of our guys. During our 06 deployment, we lost several guys from other teams, but um, I, I've been, you know, I, I've, I've never been there where we lost a U.S. soldier. You know, oh, I've treated you. them. 
um, you know, and, and made sure when they left my hands, they were, they were still living. And, and by the grace of God, they were able to get back to, you know, higher medical authority. Uh, but I never had to experience that, you know, and that's uh, unlike my wife. Uh, who's served 21 years in the combat medics completely different. Those are, those are a lot of things that haunt her, but oh um, yeah. as far as U S casualties, I've never, I've been blessed. I mean, I consider it a blessing every time I had to treat somebody or, 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 um, was experienced to that. They were the, the individual, I, I never say it was my treatments. I, I attribute their survival to their desire to live. I mean, it really is. So their, their strength is what kept them, um, breathing you know after they left and, and came home in, in my opinion well and you know to credit to your wife and we've had a couple of you know combat medics um from different branch services on the podcast and to hear the stories to hear what they had to look at every single day and go through and obviously you know they, that's the career path they chose and wanted because it's not for everybody and you have to test really high to do it but you know all that said uh, the stuff that they must recall is and we've talked to them and the stuff they do recall is literally mind-numbing because to deal with that every single day for months and months and months up to a year is it's got to weigh heavily on your soul. Um, so again, credit to your wife and her service for doing so. Let me ask you the first time you came into contact um, and the first time you were injured. What are those circumstances? Okay. So um, we'll talk about the last one. Uh, it, so we were, um, we were conducting a, we we're on our way to go do some stuff, find some guys, right? Uh, we'll just say that there is a darkness. Yep. So anytime we we cross uh, an LDA linear danger, we'd always uh, um, you'd have to clear it. You know, we had jammers, you know, for uh, jammers on some of the vehicles, which would jam uh, some of the signals for command detonated IEDs. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so but on my last deployment, we we always used uh, four wheelers, uh, ATVs, Polaris's, and um, so the senior guys would always be on ATV. So we would leapfrog. There'd always be one in front and one in back. And then we would cross an LDA, whoever was in front, well, you'd take the guys and you clear it uh, because we didn't have jammers on the uh, on the ATVs at the time. So you're like, all right, let's check this out. And you'd cross it and clear it. Uh, um, so that time during uh, during this this time I got um, hurt was uh, – <laughs> Uh, I was crossing it. I was crossing the, the LDA. We were clearing it, and I would go across, and then we'd bring some of our Afghan guys with us. Um, they'd be on foot or right on the ATV, depending, and it was a it was a washed-out riverbed. And we always crossed this area because, you know, there's only one way in and one way out of some places. And there really is. There's just – you can't avoid it. So, you know, the bad guys, they know we're coming because that's the only place you can come in, you know. And then SF-teams, we didn't have a lot of the assets, a lot of the – the tier one units had like, you know, Delta force guys or, or the team six guys, you know, we, we don't have a lot of assets, you know, it's not like we had our own bird. No, it's not realistic. We work by through and with host nation forces. And, and um, so we didn't have that. We couldn't fly in and fast rope in on them. That's just that, that just doesn't happen all the time. Um, so anyway, we were crossing this and it was, it was always like, God dang, we always get something always happens in this area. So it was like, Ugh. you know, things are a little bit tighter. We're like, all right, cool. Nothing happened. I crossed the LDA. So when I called it, call back to the uh, uh convoy i'm like hey we're good go and come on through so then but what happened was the, the convoy would come through and then whoever crossed the linear danger area uh, would stay in, at that spot and then the other four wheeler would move on around and take point you know that's we just rotated point and uh that's what we did and as we were crossing it uh i went to pull away uh the, the tail end of the uh uh I think the uh, convoy came up 
And um, as it was coming forward, uh, I pulled away and I had been, I was on the ID where the ID was, uh, but I was just one guy. So, and it was a commanded ID. Uh, so one of the Afghan trucks was coming up and they didn't have jammers on either because there's, there's a jammer creates like a bubble of protection where this Afghan truck, he was outside of the protection. Um, U.S. vehicle went by, jammers went, I guess the bubble moved past, uh, the bubble safety. Uh, the other truck came up and then I went to pull away to just kind of get into the mix of things, you know, because it was kind of a tight road. And then that's when the IED went off and it threw me an ATV and, and uh, from what I remember and from what one of the Terps had told me, because he saw it, he was in that truck, one of our interpreters, excuse me. Uh, and I, I, I kind of remember getting, feeling something like a push from the back. And then I remember uh, pushing the ATV back over. I remember being, the first thing I kind of really remember is being mad, like pissed off, like, oh shit, they got me. You know, right. I was mad. I was just, I don't remember fear. I don't. And, and Alex is not to say I don't fear. No, that's not real. I'm human. Uh, but I was pissed. And then I remember hearing over the radio that there was, a, they spotted another one in the front. Um, there was another ID. There was actually fins sticking out of the ground. They could see it. So the combo was stopped and we were just kind of waiting for like, Oh shoot, are we going to get ambushed? We're kind of like bunched in here. It was, um, but, uh, th- nothing else happened. That was, that was it, you know? And I remember after that incident, uh, I, I remember coming to, I remember being pissed and it was just a few moments. I thought I had like some dirt or something in my eye in my left eye. And, uh, I kept rubbing my eye and, and, uh, and I realized I couldn't see. And I'm like, Holy, what the hell happened? You know? And I kept like, I'm rubbing my eye right now to tell the story. Uh, I couldn't see out of my left eye. And I was just like, holy shit, what the hell? And then one of the guys came up to me and goes, hey, Rod, you all right? And I was still pissed off. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm effing fine, you know? And they're like, oh, okay, okay, man. All right, no big deal, you know? Um, so I got back on the ATV, and, and a testament to Polaris ATVs, nothing was wrong with it. I mean, <laughs> it was just, there wasn't a damn thing wrong with it, the ATV. So I got back on it and went back in until we cleared that IED, and um, then we continued mission. Um, but I remember... Um, I couldn't, my head was like pounding. I had like a, you can imagine your worst tequila hangover. That's kind of what I felt like. <laughs> and, and I couldn't see out of my left eye and I'm just like dizzy. I'm just like, oh, I'm like, it was like I'd, every now and then I'd pull the ATV over to puke. I mean, I, I knew I was at 18 Delta. So I was a medic uh, as well. So I knew I was like, man, I'm jacked up. I am, there's something wrong. Um, but I was fine. You know, I was, I was, I, I didn't have any like holes in me. I had all my pieces. Uh, I'm like, all right, I'm good. I'm, I'm good to go. Um, I'll be fine. You know, and I knew if I'd have said anything, um, they, you know, I, I should not have been there. I mean, I can, I can be well, Let me ask you, were you just being stubborn? Because you just said two seconds ago, I knew <laughs> I was banged up. I knew I was hurt. And then you said, I'm fine. Well, it's kind of hard to be both of those things. <laughs> You're right. I'm fine in the respect that, I'm still breathing. I got a pulse and food's okay. not coming out. Of yes, me. that's that's the extent of me being okay, uh, and that's where my own, you know, that's that's and that's you're right. That's doesn't a lot make sense, but that's how how at that time, sure, so yeah, kind of for anyone listening, so they can understand where I was, the mindset, my mindset. Um, but no, I was jacked up. I mean, I was. I should have said something, maybe, um, because if it was anybody else on the team, I would have I'd have called in a bird to get them out because they were it was pretty significant. Um, trauma uh um you know i had a, a runny nose i don't i don't think i know you know anytime that happens you know there's cerebral, css cerebrospinal fluid could be leaking out and my ears were 
thank goodness I had my pelters on, so my ears were okay. They were still ringing. Uh, I mean, it was just bad. It was, but I was fine. I was like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Let's continue mission. Um, so I just kind of sucked it up and and continued the one of the longest days of my life was that day. I'll, I'll be honest, because it was I was freaking miserable. I was did, just miserable. Did you worry about even though you knew that you had something was wrong, you wanted to stay in the fight, but did you worry about your your capability and your ability? to be able to stay in the fight effectively, I, I guess would you staying, would you being there have done more harm than good had something else happened after that? Uh, I did not, you know, I, I did not think about any of the long-term consequences and they, it was, it turned into consequences. You know, um, I did not think that far ahead, you know, it was just in the immediate, like I need to be here for, for the guys, for the family, you know, and that's, that was my short-term you know, uh, view, I suppose. Uh, I never, ever once thought about that. And, and looking back now, uh, in essence, you know, really, uh, by me staying there, I was a liability, you know, uh, I was a complete liability because, um, someone had asked when years later, when I am going to the doctors and they found everything that was going on with me, um, I was posed with a question. They're like, Hey, look, look at it. I was pissed. You know, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to stay in the fight because um, I was getting med board at the time. But one of the doctors told me, uh, he was like, look, look at it this way. Let's say you're a team sergeant. Would you want someone on your team dealing with the stuff you're dealing with and you not know about it? And I was like, hell no. And they're like, well, why would they? You're a liability. And I was like, crap, I never, ever did I consider that that viewpoint at all. You know, I, I never did. And, uh, you know, you can't see straight. You can't walk straight. You know, uh, you're not sleeping. You're always tired. You're, I mean, there's just so many other things that are going on. You got tremors when you do, th- it's just, there was so much going on, but I never saw that. I, I just felt me being there was enough. Um, but I think that's common with a lot of things, you know, when people, they're like, no, I'm fine. They, they need to be there. Even if they're not there hundred uh, percent, it's, it's common. So I never, looking back now, I can be honest. I can be honest with myself. You know, that's how I get past it. Um, but yeah, I was a liability. I should have said something. When you when you look back on it, uh, you know, and knowing what you know now, do you think things would have turned out differently had you kind of tapped out at that moment? Uh, yes, without doubt. Like, because, could, could they uh, have, you know, what was the extent of your injuries at that point? I know you okay. said your eye was messed up. Yeah, so uh, my, my vision came back uh, months later, um, but it might have come back sooner. Um, because let's just talk about my vision real quick. And this is one of the things people can understand a little bit more. Uh, so after that one, uh, after that ID, it was within about a four week period. I had two more significant brain injuries. Um, it wow. was, you know, the wheels are coming off my wagon and my eyesight might've come back sooner and it might've come back normal had I left after that first one, because when my eyesight, eyesight did come back after about four months or so, um, uh, my eyes stopped communicating with one another. You know, we take, you know, um, you know, when you're, the way your eyes work is it takes two separate images and your brain marries them into one. Well, my eyes turned into like a married couple. They stopped communicating. So, so I have to, I have like perfect horizontal diplopia, which is double vision. So I, I see two of everything. And that's why I wear, if, you, if anybody sees me, they, I, my eyes are in two different colors. So I wear these prosthetic lenses uh, over both of my eyes to help me correct that. Uh, and some of the other visual, secondary visual uh, um, problems that I have with uh, that are because of some of the neurological damage. Um, so that may, I may not, I may not have had that, you know. And the doctors, 
later on they told me yeah you, you could have been in a lot better shape you know I, i've already started developing parkinson's i have tremors like they're called attention tremors mm-hmm. uh so when i try and do fine motor skill things my 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 I start to shake, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not like, I don't just stand and, you know, have uh, involuntary tremors just by doing nothing. But when I try and do fine motor skills, um, I, my, my handwriting is horrible. Um, so that, um, you know, I've got, I'm going to have headaches probably the rest of my life. Uh, there's just, there's that there's, uh, I have balance problems, uh, vestibular disorder, uh, because of some of the damage that, you know, all the brain injuries I had, um, I had to go to speech therapy. I still do, <laughs> uh, I, I, um, because of some of the, of course, some of the damage that affects the speech, uh, centers within my brain. Um, let me think I need a whole list. I need to read these off to you. Uh, when I left the hospital, I had about like 17, 18 different diagnoses when I left the hospital, but you know, it, it's, uh, it just is what it is, you know, and that's just, those are my daily fights. Well, look, I mean, obviously glad that you're uh, still here with us, but you know, the, the, everything that you're suffering from, um, was any of it preventable? I mean, I'm not the IED stuff, obviously the results of that are what they are, but you know, continuing to want to stay in the fight as opposed to let me get some treatment first, get healed up and then go back in, you know, is, is that the standpoint things would have been different? Yes. Yeah, 100%. The doctors told me, they're like, look, if you would have done something immediately afterwards, uh, the probability that you could have served longer is exists. You know, the one of the doctors I had was uh, <clears throat> very good because he, he didn't sugarcoat it. He, he didn't, uh, he told me what I needed to know. Uh, he didn't like trying, you know, some trying to, uh, you know, make me feel better about it. I, I just wanted the truth, you know, and, and he told me, cause I asked him, I said, well, did I make things worse? He goes, yes, you did. <laughs> you know, um, and he's, when you he hear when you, when you hear that though, what was your reaction? Uh, is it like, damn, like I, why was I so stupid? Yeah, or was it like, it was, Hey man, I, did, like, I, I gave it my all, left it all out there. And these are the results of it. It was, it was like, damn, but it was also like, well, those are choices I made. You know, um, it's, it's just, uh, it's, man, it's, it's hard to describe really. Uh, it's, it's kind of both, you know, I was like, damn it. You know, cause I wanted, everyone wants to have done better. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but at the same time, you know, I'm like, all right, well, I don't know what state I'd be in. I don't know where I'd be. You know, I don't know what my life would be like had I not made those decisions. Um, so it's, it's kind of a bit of both. It's, it's, so, it's uh, so when you, something I'm trying to figure out too. <laughs> sure. Right. When, when you're told, you're being told that you're being medically retired, uh, obviously for your injuries, in that moment, was there, you know, was that like the wake up, like I should have done something different or is this all, um, you know, coming from the doctors after the fact? Um, it was no, it, 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 for me, I was pissed. I was mad. I didn't want to get out. You know, it was my initial, you know, it's like, you know, like taking a, a lollipop from a little baby, you know, it's sugar. He loves it. He's got it. He's going to hold on. You take it to him. What's the initial reaction? Guys, things get pissed off. Well, that was me. You know, I, was, I threw my little fit. I threw my little tantrum. I was upset. I was mad at the world, you know. Uh, so I, I, um, you know, that's, that's, that was my initial reaction. I never, and then as I thought about it later on, and like I said, I had that doctor that gave it to me straight, you know, I was like, all right, maybe I could have done things better, but um, I can't live in the past, but what can I do now? 
Right. What did your wife say? I mean, she was obviously a medical professional as you're going through all this stuff. Did she, did she ever try to employ you to slow down, take a turn, you know, do whatever, something else other than what you're doing? Um, I was, I was so, believe it or not. So no one really knew how bad things were. What I didn't either. No one, and, and I'll say bad, like I'm like, I'm like that bad or something, but, um, my wife didn't even really understand. So I, I lived like I was able to conceal it so well that my wife kind of had a feeling that I was having some issues, but you, you couldn't approach, she could not approach me. Right. Um, so I, I, until I had like a, a seizure in front of her for the first time, uh, she didn't know that I, how bad I was. And when I did, you know, um, she asked me what was wrong and I, I lied. I said, Oh, I just, just tired. Cause my seizures, when I would have them, um, I would just like, I wouldn't, you know, full blown like filleting around or anything. It was just like it looked like I'd just close my eyes and like go to sleep almost immediately, <laughs> you know, uh, and then just like and then wake up right afterwards. It looked like a quick cat nap or something. Uh, but when they recorded it later on, it was seizure activity. Uh, but I couldn't control them. Uh, when I had one in front of her. I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I'm fine. I'm just, just... Would you have accepted if, if they allowed you to stay in and accept a desk job? You know, just listen, you can come here and work every day and everything else. Would you have accepted that or no? You needed to kind of be no, at the tip of the spear. No, no, I would. I wanted to. Uh, no, I couldn't. I, I don't think I'd have stayed in if I sending emails isn't my thing. You know, what well, is now? Damn it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but not 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 while wearing a uniform. No, because I wanted to, you know, and I think. You know, I think he uh, explained it. You know, I wanted to be there for, for my brothers and sisters. So if I'm not there for them, if I'm not in the moment with them, then I mean, I can support them in a different fashion. And I, you know, and I was just, I, I would not have stayed in, though. No. Right. Well, fortunately for you, and I just uh, from talking to you, I, I know this, but uh, your legacy as a, as a soldier is carried on by your son now, who's in the 82nd Airborne Division, correct? Yeah, yeah. My uh, my oldest son, uh, as soon as he joined high school, he, me and him had the same almost this, the same conversation. Uh, uh, my father and I had where I, I didn't I never encouraged nor discouraged it, you know, um, but I wanted my son to go in as an officer. I was like, hey, Miko, let's try and maybe go to college, go to ROTC and and then or maybe we get you to the West Point prep school. Let's just figure something because he was an athlete. You know, I was like, hey, look, let's let's look something else. But he you know, there's a war going on. He's like, no, dad, I want to this is what I want to do. You know, I want to get into it. I'm like, all right, well, um, so I said, of course, we supported him. And uh, so he joined, uh, joined the Army two years ago, um, and he just came home earlier in the year from his first deployment to Afghanistan. Wow, that's unreal. Let's kind of draw the circle of life here for a moment. Um, you know, the, the things that your father never talked about, about his experience in combat, um, did he ever share them with you? And do you share your experiences in combat with your son? Yeah, so it, it changed. The relationship changed um, when I came home uh, from my first deployment. And when I say relationship, it's... Uh, uh, with you and your father, you did, Yeah, with okay. me and my father. So, And it was the exact same thing with my son. Um, so when I came home, I, I it, not that I needed a reason to have any more respect for my father, but I had like profound level for, of respect because what I did in Somalia was not compared to what he did in, in, in Vietnam at right. all. But yeah. I was just like, holy crap, you know, it's just a little bit different. Um, so then when my son came home, you know, uh, for me, I understand that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's different. You know, our relationship is different now. You know, not only is he my oldest son, but he's a, he's a fellow combat veteran. Um, you know, he's got his, uh, you know, the CIB, he, he uses his mind. I gave him mine. You know, oh wow! Uh, for his yeah, so I gave him my CIB and. Well, that must have been um, like a great moment for you. 
yeah, it was it was cool. Uh, <laughs> I'll say that much. Yeah, so he wears uh, he wears my CIB and his mother's jump wings. Uh, oh, that's I awesome! Lost my jump, I lost my jump wings. I don't know what the hell happened to him. Uh, my first set of jump wings I got in '92, but my wife, when she went to jump school, um, I was actually the one that pinned her wings on her. Uh, so then I got to pin those same wings back onto my son. So That's we have awesome. a different, that is unreal. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool relationship. Um, you know, yeah, we're, you know, um, uh, mother, father, son, but it, we're also three combat vets, you know, with, with a pretty, uh, um, pretty mean sense of humor too. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. <laughs> that's a, uh, that's amazing. I mean, Anybody who's been in who gets anything passed on to them from whether it's just your rank or whatever, I mean, do you remember that kind of stuff? Uh, and, and I can only imagine when you do it with your family how special that moment must be. And, uh, you know, what a what a great relief. For, not relief is not the right word, but what a great experience for your son from the standpoint of, you know, obviously he wanted to do this because he saw his dad do it. And it's almost like a, um, you know, a confirmation that you, you, even though I'm your father and you're my son, we're still the same, so to speak. We, we've we've plowed the same turf and uh, and done the same things, and so from that standpoint, we're almost peers, right? Yeah, no, it is. It's it, it's it's a relationship. It's a it's a, it just improved our relationship. You know, I love my sons, and 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 it just it's just different. I, I don't even know how to describe it. All right. Well, your wife also served 21 years. You served 21 years. Your son is currently in. You have all that in place, uh, but currently you are the president and CEO for the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation. Uh, how does that come about, um, and essentially what is the foundation doing? Yeah, so I joined the board about two and a half years ago, um, and what the what we had to do was uh, – so the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation is the congressionally designated nonprofit that is building a GWAT, the Global War on Terror Memorial in our nation's capital, much like the Vietnam Wall, World War II Memorial, Korea. Uh, there's a storm memorial that's going up here pretty soon, hopefully, and the World War One Memorial. That's actually the next one that's going to go up. Um, They're so a little late on the I, World War One Memorial. A little late. A little bit. It's been 100 years. It's been 100 years. Yeah, they, they need to get moving quickly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, unfortunately, you know, our, our last, the last World War One veteran, veteran, uh, Mr. Buckles, died in I think it was 2011. It might be 12, but, you know, um, just you know, six, seven years ago. So wait, um, they 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 want to make sure everybody from the the combat is is passed on. No, 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 no. Oh, no, okay. No, definitely not. No, no, no. They didn't. I'm just saying that as as a as a fact. You oh, know, okay, gotcha. Right. We don't even have the memorial yet. Uh, the war has been over for 100 years. Uh, but you know, we don't even have any more, there's no more living veterans, um, which is sad, I think. So what we do, uh, what we're doing, uh, so we were faced, um, so we, uh, with an obstacle, so building a memorial in the nation's capital, um, there's obviously anyone can understand there's a lot of, of, uh, rules and regulations. Let's just call it that bureaucracy, right? Uh, so it's a 24 step process. Well, in order to even do that, uh, there's a, a federal, uh, uh, act that states the Commitment of Works Act states a war has to be over for a period of 10 years in order for a national war memorial to be built. Now, that law was written in 1986. Now, it may have been a good idea in 1986, um, but we're in a multi generational conflict uh, with no end in sight. And if we followed that, we would never. I won't be around to see the memorial war. being no, erected. <laughs> I, I will not. I, we mean you'll be long gone, brother. Um, so. Uh, we, we had to do, we had to change federal law. And anytime you say that, people are like, whoa, what? You know, it's just, it's, it's, it doesn't sound like something easy, right? Well, if you can imagine, 
last year, uh, we introduced a piece of legislation, House Resolution 873, um, that passed in six months wow. through the House and Senate, unanimously bipartisan support. Uh, President Trump signed the Global War on Terrorism War Memorial Act in August of 2017, exempting us from the Commemorative Works Act. In 2017, we passed a bill in six months. So now we can do it um, because, you know, the very first generation of uh, or the early war fighters, the very first start of, of the war, uh, you know, much like myself, and we're in our 40s. Uh, some guys are in their 50s, 60s. Some senior leadership are in their 70s. You know, um, so we needed to do this. So we did it. We we passed the law. Now, um, I took over a leadership uh, role earlier this year, um, and that's what we're doing right now is is doing the uh, fundraising and and coordinating uh, to build the global war on terror memorial in in our nation's capital. With a uh, currently our our dead our uh, our timeline is we want to uh, uh, groundbreaking in 2022 and then uh, dedication in 2024. Yeah. What's crazy about this whole thing is I'm sitting here thinking, you know, if a you know soldier, Marine, airman, whatever, has a combat engagement and, you know, whatever comes out of it, they get awarded their silver star, their blonde star with valor, whatever it may be. As soon as the conflict is over, this isn't like a waiting period for the Hall of Fame in sports. Like where they have to be out of the game for five years, like. This is one of these things where when something happens that's noteworthy in the military, we reward them and award them immediately as soon as possible. The idea that the, the concept that we would wait to build a memorial because technically, as you said, the conflict isn't over. But it's just it, it seems so nonsensical of all things. Right. So like it just it, it's OK to recognize you know individuals for their service and remembrance of them uh, as soon as. It's appropriate. And in this case, it's appropriate <laughs> to do it right now. Like, I don't know. Yeah, no, 100%. So let me tell you about the Commander Works Act of 1986. The Commander Works Act of 1986 is, our, is, is Congress's uh, reaction to the building of the Vietnam Wall, which was 1982. So before Jan Scruggs you know, spearheaded the movement to build the Vietnam Wall, um, there was nothing – there was no rule or anything like that. So – it, there was nothing in existence. So when that wall was dedicated in November 13th, 1982, Congress is like, well, we need rules and regulations. And, and I applaud them for that. I, I think that, you know, we have there, there needs to be rules and regulations at times, you know. But to say that, you know, basically they, they established a precedence for all future wars, which is so much short sighted, in my opinion. Um, no, it is so short-sighted. It's, right. it, I mean, it, <laughs> it's like we, there's not a schedule when a war comes out. Like they, they just, just sort of happen for whatever series of events that goes on. So it, I don't know. To me, it's short-sighted doesn't quite cover, but I, I get your point. <laughs> yeah. So that's what they, that's what they came up with. Um, you know, and I think it's, I think it's somewhat of a, of a, a, a national tragedy. Let's just call it that, um, that we existed as a nation for 206 years before we had a national war memorial. So if you think about it like that, it wasn't until 1982 we had a national war memorial with the building of the Vietnam Wall, which is crazy to me. I mean, we have war memorials that exist. You know, I mean, the largest and, and the most profound in my is, is Gettysburg. That's, a, that's phenomenal. If anyone's ever been there, yeah. they understand. If you haven't been there, you need to go. Um, yeah, walk, but walk pickets, charge, do that whole battlefield. Yeah, it's, it's oh, yeah. awe-inspiring but, stuff. We never had one in our nation's capital until 1982. We existed for 206 years before that happened, which is crazy. So 
a lot of war memorials are going up right now. So, you know, like I said, Desert Storm just got land, their area, uh, land given to them. Um, you know, they were designated a spot on the mall, which is great. I'm happy for them. Uh, World War One is going up in Pershing Park. Um, but a lot of the, a lot of the governance and controls, there's various different commissions that exist. So, you know, one of the, some of the general sentiment is like, well, the, the, there's only so much space in Washington Memorial in, in Washington, D.C. on the mall. We don't want to be known as a, a nation of war memorials. And, you know, my my counter to that is, well, well, first of all, we wouldn't have a nation. We wouldn't have. Yeah, I'm not, what a baffling response. If we didn't if we didn't fight in wars, so we only are a country because we fought a war. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but with all these war memorials springing up all of a sudden, well, we're kind of behind. I mean, and, and the, the perfect example is the fact that we don't have a World War One memorial yet. It's it's still it's almost it's it's going to happen very shortly, but it's you know so people have to sometimes be you know educated on 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 what it is you know and I'm I I, I have no problems being that individual to do that. Well, look, that's that's amazing. Again, the the logic behind all of it seems incredibly silly, but uh, I just one more question on this. You know, you talk about the Vietnam Memorial. And that's the fact that it was the first one that went up. Do you think, and this is just your opinion, I'm not asking you to speak officially, you know, as part of the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation, but do you think that because of the general overview of American citizens that disagreed with us being in that war, and the fact that that was the first memorial that went up and people saw the reaction to those who went to the wall and everything else, that that was part of the reason that they put that together because they said, well, look, you know, we don't look really good in this spot, you know, that, that, we, we spat on our veterans. We spat on those people who, who fought in that war. And this memorial reminds everybody how poorly we treated them that, you know, maybe we should kind of hold off on putting more, more, more memorials up. Do you, any of that ring any, you know, truth or honesty? No, I don't think so. Okay. I, I don't think so. I, I really don't. And, and you know, I, I can say that with a clear conscience. I really don't think so because, you know, anyone that goes to the Vietnam Wall, whether they served or not or whether it, it's, it, it touches you. You know, yes. every every one of those memorials you go to touches you in a different way. The the wall is very solemn and very, I mean, it touches you. You know, I have a cousin on the wall. Of course, he passed before I wasn't. You know, he passed before I was born. But uh, it's it's profound. I mean, it really is. And then you go to the World War II memorial and you see that how large it was, and that's a perfect example of how what World War II meant, how big it was. It was it was a world war. You know, and it's and it's amazing. You just go around and read the read the quotes and see the stars and it's, it's the Pacific Atlantic. I mean, you just go there and every state it's is beautiful. listed and it's just, it just touches you, you know? Um, and then you go to the Korean war memorial and it's, it's to me, it's, and I say this in, in, if this word can be meant in, in a good light, it's haunting. You know, you see well, that. Right. You I was harrowing, see, harrowing was the word I was men. thinking of. Yeah. That was the word yeah. that popped because I've been there and it's almost, it, it's ghostly in a sense, you it know, is, that you can, you, you walk through it, you almost feel like, you're, those people are, who fought in that, that combat are there with you watching over it. Right, and I think it's important because it's educational. That's the educational aspect of that. It's it's every one of those pieces, every one of those war memorials that I just mentioned, Vietnam, World War II, and Korea, are functional pieces of art. Art has an ability to tell a story, share, share a message, share an emotion that sometimes words fall short or they don't exist. You know, and and that's what's very very important. That lends to the educational aspect because you know if you look at the numbers, so World War II, eleven percent of the population served. Korea was seven percent. World or Vietnam was uh, 
four uh, percent. Right now, less than one percent of our na- our nation wears uniform at any given time. You know, and um, so it's a very small percentage. So we have to, um, with these war memorials, educate everybody what about about that one percent. You know, we have to show the American people who this one percent is and what they went through. And as an educational aspect, not as a to separate them because of, you know the. That one percent, I look at it and I'm proud. I'm super happy that it only takes one percent to defend the 99 percent. Being a family of that one percent, I can say that. I think uh, pretty confidently with with all the credibility I need. I think, um, but you know that 99 percent some has has that disconnect. You know, there's this general term that's tossed around, but civilian military divide. Yeah, um, it's it's bullcrap. It does not exist today. My father and his generation, when they came home from Vietnam, that was a civilian military divide. What we have today is a misunderstanding, and what I hope to capture with the the building of the, of the Shiwat Memorial is to kind of you know it, you know fix that misunderstanding, and we're going to do that through four areas. So we're going to honor the service and sacrifice of all those that you know that all those servant leaders, that selfless service, that everyone that in, enlisted and raised their hand and said the same words I did, you know, um, that served. But we're also in, you know, a lot of them never got a chance to take the uniform off. We're also going to honor the service and sacrifices of the families that served because, you know, while my family deployed a whole bunch of times between myself, my wife, and, and my son, the hardest deployments for me were not the deployments I went on. The hardest deployments for me were watching my wife deploy and watching my son deploy. So the family uh, has a unique um, – they, they serve in a unique capacity, particularly the children. You know, the children do it with a smile. They never had a choice. They don't get to tell their parents – Yes, we'll join the army, or no, we won't. You know, they just do it, and they do it. Military military children are phenomenal. They're just some of the most resilient, resilient and strong, strongest people I've I've ever met. So we're going to honor their service and sacrifices of everyone. I've also served. We also want to honor, in keeping with our, our the the charge given to us by Congress, we want to want to honor the service and sacrifices of of those that maybe didn't wear the uniform but could, did serve in the global war on terror. I stood side by side with GS, uh, DOD employees, contractors that were doing a lot of the same work I was, you know, whatever their motivations were to serve in whatever capacity they still serve. And that's something that I think is important, you know, um, that allowed that also those people that did serve made sure that that 1% could continue to serve, you know, that we didn't need a larger military. So they augmented our, our capacities as, as a nation to fight the global war terror, you know, exponentially. So honor. We also want to heal, healing the nation. You know, that's very important. You know, war affects everybody, you know, whether you serve or not. So we want to heal us as a nation. We want to heal those that served and lost. We also want to heal us through education. The third thing is empowerment. You know, that's going to take very various different uh, forms, you know, through education, through engagement. You know, talk about the war. Remember, I talked mentioned earlier where people don't really understand or know what's going on. It's just almost people almost forget they were still in the war. I mean, it's crazy to me. But men and women are still fighting and dying. So, we through empowerment, we're going to break down that misunderstanding and and tell people um, who it is fighting, why we're fighting. You know, or or maybe start conversations that need to be had, not just within the general populace, but within our leadership. You know, our elected officials. Um, perhaps this is important for them to take a step back and look at things. And then the fourth tenet, if you were to look at the, consider them all tenets would be unity. We're going to unite us as a nation, you know, and this is how we're going to do it by building this global war on terror. And, and this is, this is my dos centavos in my opinion. So if you look at the military, albeit 1%, you 
you could any platoon in that military in, in the army or myself's platoon just line them up against the wall bring them in a room and look at whatever social label they choose to accept or identify with whether it's their their race creed uh, their nationality or their or uh religion whatever um you're not going to find a more broad and diverse group in existence uh that a functioning working group that does not exist the most inclusive and diverse working group that exists is the united states military so in essence that one percent is a direct reflection of the 99 percent you know and by doing that people that didn't serve or don't know anybody to serve will be able to look at those of us that did and be like you know what you're just like me you know you just took on a different path you serve this country in a different capacity you know there's so many different ways to serve this country uh not everyone has to you know, uh, take the oath of enlistment uh, or oath of office and put on the uniform and carry a gun in harm's way. Not everyone has to do that. You know, there's so many other ways you can serve this nation, uh, be a good patriot, you know, follow the laws, vote, pay your taxes, um, smile. You know, there's so many different ways you can do it. Uh, I, I think is really, really important. And I think that's how we will be able to unite us as a nation because I have to remind people when I, when I go out and tell everyone what we're doing, why we're doing it, why we need to do it, is that this is not a 9-11 memorial. Those exist. We have phenomenal 9-11 memorials there's a, there's a, there, that exist in, in Washington, D.C., at a field in Pennsylvania, and then the ones in New York. And there are several different other ones, independent ones that exist as well throughout the country. What I need to what I have to remind people is, is we're not a nine. This is not building a 9/11 memorial. We we're going to do this is the response our country had to the attacks of 9/11, sending our sons and daughters into harm's way, hunting down terror is what we were doing. Um, and in doing that, we're, I hope to capture what everybody felt like. I remember when we first started uh, this conversation here, you know what it felt like, you know, following the uh, the attacks. Well, everyone became united. Everyone wanted to do something about that. We were so united as a nation following those attacks. And I think by building this memorial, we will be able to remind everybody that this is the greatest country on the on in in the world, and that's why everybody wants to come and live here. And that's what we're going to be able to do. We'll be able to capture that, unite us as a nation as well. Wow. Um, beautiful words, uh, beautiful thoughts. And obviously, you know, uh, I'm sure the memorial itself will reflect all those things vividly. Uh, I know you probably can't tell me exactly what it is, but do you have the design of the memorial yet or that's still being worked? Yeah, that's that's to come. So there, I think I might have said I'm not sure, but there's a 24 step process. We're on steps nine through 12. So okay. what we're hoping to do the first quarter 19 is go and ask for um, we're trying to seek a spot on the mall in area one, which is the national mall. Um, you know, the kind of where all the other memorials are somewhat. Um, so that's where we're at. We're not going to open up. We're going to open up for a design competition, much like Jan did with um, the building of the Vietnam Wall. We're going to open a competition. We're not sure the, the mechanics or schematics or how that's going to look right now, but we do not have a design yet because we're following the steps. This is what the government said we have to do. Roger that. We'll follow those steps. You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to come up with a design. I don't think we should as a foundation and then say, okay, and then say, we're going to build it here. That's just not how things work. That's not how things work in Washington. That's for damn sure. Uh, so we will, we will get to that point eventually. Right now we're focused on getting land, uh, getting a spot on the mall. Um, and then once that happens, then we'll, we'll know how big a space we have. And then when we go and open up to a, a design competition through all the, the phenomenal artists and architects that exist, they will have their left and right limits. In general, you know, a, a big worry is like if we were to do it the other way, someone may come up with a phenomenal design and we vote. Yep, that's it. We've invested 
I don't know, tens or hundreds of thousand dollars on this design, you know, or maybe a million dollars. I don't even know what it costs. And all of a sudden we're given a spot of land that's too small or right. it doesn't yeah. fit, you know, it's, they, maybe they give us, you know, this, this, this design that's like take up the space of an acre and a half, but they give us five acres. Well, well, crap, what do we do now? You know, you see what I mean? So that's just not the way to go about things. And it's definitely not an efficient way. I'm a very pragmatic and like, individual and i like to do things as efficient as possible so we're not quite there yet well look i i got all the faith in the world that this will be something extremely special and again hitting on those tenants that you talked about and it is long overdue um it's it's never too early to recognize the service and sacrifice of people who put on the uniform uh in defense of this nation so from that standpoint i thank you for you know once again being the tip of the spear on this whole thing because it doesn't get done without people like you who who truly want to see uh, and make a difference in people's lives every single day. And, you know, everything from uh, your 21 years in the service, your family's continued service, you know, your wife and your son and everybody, uh, certainly thank you for uh, for doing that and dedicating your life to it. And, of course, now, you know, you're still serving every single day, uh, just in a different capacity. I know that kind of really is what charges you and gets you out of bed in the morning. But it's just been an amazing discussion, an amazing conversation. We certainly thank you for uh, for all that you've brought to our listeners. No, hey, thanks, Mark. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come in here and just, just chat with you. And, and I think you're doing a, a phenomenal job with what you're doing. I, I don't think you fully understand the second and third order effects of, of bringing some of these. You know, I scrolled through the list of individuals you got on here. But uh, um, sharing these stories is extremely important um, because uh, I, I, I believe by sharing these stories, you're saving lives, my friend. Well, I hope so. I mean, in the grand scheme, you know, we, we hope that that's a great end result. Uh, we just, you know, we want people to, to to hear everybody's story from the military and from their time in service. And I think it's important. You know, it's great to have your, your story made into a book and into a movie, but not everybody who's served got that benefit. And that's why we do this is, is to give people a chance to tell their story, what their service means to them and uh, what it means to the people around them. And I just, uh, there's a lot of value and especially in hearing the diverse level of stories that we've told um, to our listening audience, there's there's a lot of value in hearing all those because it helps put context into into what service really means. No, you're right. You guys are doing a phenomenal job, brother. All right. Well, we'll certainly, again, appreciate your time and keep fighting the good fight. And I know we'll all be patiently waiting the erection of the Global War on Terror Memorial when it happens in a couple of years. But can't thank you enough, Michael Rodriguez. Thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks for having me, bro. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. 
When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today. When it comes to working at GEICO, our best advocates are our employees, like Maxine. But since she's so focused on growing her career, we hired an actor to read her story. At GEICO, I love mentoring the new associates to help them make this a career and not just a job. And with new opportunities and job stability, GEICO has been helping people grow their careers for over 75 years. The only downside, she still hasn't met the gecko. Where are you, fella? Ready to start your career, Fredericksburg? We're hiring claim sales and service agents. Apply online today at geico.job slash Fredericksburg.